Hi, this is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMM, and welcome to the MMM Podcast for November 2nd, 2021. MMM did a series of ebooks on orphan drug marketing back in 2015 and 2016, and at the time, orphan medicines accounted for about 10% of worldwide prescription sales, with about $83 billion in sales for 2012. Fast forward eight years or so, and in 2020, orphan drug revenues totaled $138 billion and account for a fifth of worldwide pharma sales, according to Evaluate Pharma. That impressive growth underscores how firms from small startups founded in suburban kitchens to big pharma bellwethers have recognized the potential of focusing on rare diseases. But can biopharma's considerable marketing muscle solve challenges like shortening the time to diagnosis, clinical trial disparities, and the need for physician education in disease states, which doctors have never seen even in medical school, not to mention access and reimbursement issues. To answer some of these questions, MMM released its latest rare diseases ebook last week called Fittingly Revisiting Rare Disease, and you can find it on the ebooks page of our website. In light of that, this week on the podcast, we'll be talking to Michael Nace, brand director for the website and MMM sister brand, Rare Disease Advisor at rarediseaseadvisor.com. Hey, Michael, first time we're doing one of these. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Pleasure's all mine. As Michael can attest, because he lives and breathes this space, rare isn't so uncommon anymore. And we'll talk with Michael about strides made in rare disease research, marketing, and yes, media. But first, a couple of housekeeping items. The second annual MMM Media Summit is happening virtually on December 2nd. We'll be convening a who's who of health media experts for a candid discussion of the industry's most compelling issues from point of care's post-pandemic pivot to audio's appeal to health-friendly evolutions in out-of-home and tech and much more. You can read about that uh, or register on the events page of our website, mmm-online.com. And as we mentioned, uh, the Rare Disease eBook is available on our site under the eBook section, just launched last Friday. And as opposed to the uh, PDF version of the 2015 Orphan Drug Marketing eBook, we now offer it in a uh, Ciro's format, which is much more interactive. I mean, I remember back in 2015, we were excited when we got a live URL on the PDF. Uh, and now the Ciro's module is just like light years uh, ahead in terms of interactivity. So I think everybody will enjoy that. Okay, back to the interview with RDA's Michael Nace. First, I just want to point out in full disclosure that MMM and RDA are published by the same parent, Haymarket Media. And Michael, just thought we'd, it would be helpful for our audience to have you talk a little bit about Rare Disease Advisor. Sure. Uh, so Rare Disease Advisor is Haymarket's substantial investment into serving the rare disease community at large. We started working on the website uh, back in March um, and launched it in August, so it's still quite new. But in the course of that time, uh, we've really brought to bear a tremendous effort uh, on the content side and on our, our audience building side uh, to you know, really hit the objectives that we have for the website, which is to um, administer to, the, to a clinician audience and specifically to identify and engage the care teams uh, that treat the various rare diseases that we cover. At present, we're covering uh, 16 different rare diseases. Uh, we've designed the website so that while the homepage is sort of an aggregate of all of our content, um, there are microsites within, the, within RDA that we call junctions. Um, and these junctions really offer users a comprehensive set of resources 
ranging from uh, news and perspectives and uh, insights into the disease um, that really can keep the entire uh, care team of that particular disease informed. And, and, and our ultimate goal here is really to spur on um, decreased time to diagnosis for, for these rare diseases and to give um, clinicians of all stripe uh, the resources they need to identify, diagnose, and ultimately uh, get pa- uh, rare disease patients on a treatment path to improve their outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a very uh, much needed, not to mention ambitious, mission statement uh, to, to try to shorten that time to diagnosis. I'm glad you mentioned the, the breadth and the depth of the of the care team uh, because that is one of the one of the hallmarks, of course, of, of rare diseases is the wide spectrum of, of clinicians uh, that that's involved in, in every patient's care. But since you mentioned you know research there, I thought we'd we'd start off um, our first um, question here. I, I wanted to ask you about kind of the 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 growth of, of rare disease uh, research. You know, we we've seen since the advent of the Orphan Drug Act of 1983 uh, and FDA's orphan and priority review designations, a spurring on of rare disease R&D. And, and as you put it to me offline, a kind of crescendoing of drug development. You talk about where you see some of those uh, sources of innovation uh, springing up these days. Right. Well, obviously, revenue uh, is very much the mother of, of innovation in, in the pharma industry in the United States. It was, it was sort of a, um, a stumbling block for drug development in the rare disease space for many years because Pharma companies didn't really have the revenue incentive to spend millions, if not billions, on uh, rare disease therapies that were not going to treat uh, large patient groups. You could certainly get a lot more uh, bang for your buck, so to speak, out of uh, developing um, the next iterative therapies for diabetes or cardio- cardiovascular disease or um, cancers that affect you know large swaths of the population versus these small patient groups that have maybe a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand people in the U.S. Um, so, absolutely, the orphan drug designation, uh, fast track status, um, all of these incentives have turned the industry on its head in terms of uh, looking to make those investments um, into resources, you know, therapeutic resources. I think it has definitely given rise to new challenges, though, because <clears throat> I think concurrently as uh, we, we saw more and more um, emphasis being put on developing therapies for rare diseases. We also began to see more of an emphasis on a patient-centric ap- approach, right? So uh, the, uh, while healthcare providers are obviously very important um, in the care journey for a patient, in the rare disease space in particular, we see a lot of patients and families really doing uh, the bulk of the um, advocacy for, for their own health. Um, and, and their own needs, um, you know, outside of that kind of traditional healthcare model. And, you know, pharma, I think, recognizes that it needed to do more than just, uh, you know, make medicines, right? It needed to become uh, more um, actively engaged with, uh, with patients and families and caregivers, in addition to healthcare providers. And I think that's really the challenge. We, uh, in some ways, we're seeing some asymmetrical growth. Uh, where there's this this influx of new therapies, approved therapies, or uh, late late clinical stage uh, therapies that are coming along, but do we really have the infrastructure around those those drug approvals and launches uh, to help 
maximize their effectiveness? Do we have the patient education and the support groups uh, and the con- and you know in the digital realm where I where I work, you know, all of the the content and resources um, that are needed to 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 really maximize their their effectiveness. Um, and and that, that the same goes for clinical trials as well. And and being able to ensure that we're as a community we're doing everything we can to maximize participation uh, in the next generation of therapies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. And you mentioned some other disease states uh, that have perhaps been better funded over the years, um, although that's, that's changing as, as rare diseases become more of a, a target for, uh, for drug makers. But, you know, now we see rare disease professionals following the oncology model, to name one, you know, which has become a more chronic disease state with, with many, many drug targets. Um, where do you see some of the disease areas of attention that are getting your attention? I really, uh, I, I used uh, NORD's Rare Impact Awards um, and, and their, their, their conferences often as a bellwether. Um, and I've found that over the last five, six years, you can kind of divine um, from, from sort of where they're focusing on what we might see. And it's interesting because I would say that approvals that we've seen over the past year or so were ones that we, we were beginning to hear about back in you know, 2017, um, 2018. So I, I think we've seen some uh, tremendous strides in sickle cell, which is, which is wonderful. And I remember, again, I remember going to the, to the Nord conference uh, and hearing them, uh, you know, really talking about what was coming coming down the line there. I think in hemophilia, uh, we're we're bound to to, to see some some uh, tremendous strides there. Hopefully, we're going to see some uh, some gene replacement therapy options. That's a community that that really needs, uh, you know, a, a good story. Um, they've uh, that they've certainly endured some some tough ones over the decades. Um, and I think that we might see some. Some approvals down the line uh, with uh, Angelman syndrome uh, and maybe some of the the, the rare uh, forms of autism as well. So there's a there's a large scope of of you know rare diseases that are, that are all quite disparate from one another and you know affect patients in, in dramatically different ways. But uh, um, we're seeing that you know we're getting close on a lot of them. Amazing, and, and you know some of the technologies that are helping us to get there include AI and machine learning. And I remember reporting one story out in early 2020, I guess it was right before the pandemic, um, about how these technologies have been used to repurpose older drugs for use in treating orphan disease and how the rise of AI predicted therapies has also spurred a new model for how biotechs and advocacy groups can work together to find treatments for rare diseases. So it's not just that marketers are working with working with advocacy groups on the marketing side, but also on the R and D side as well. Are you seeing that area flourish? You know that kind of collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, what comes to mind immediately is the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and the tremendous investments uh, and support that they made into Vertex. Um, early on in, in those groundbreaking therapies, and certainly in all other corners of rare disease um, where you have well-established advocacy groups, uh, you see a lot of participation in uh, not only funding of research, but also um, the building of patient registries, which I think is, is critically important. You know, it, it's such a challenge to even just identify uh, the, the, these patient groups in the United States and beyond and, and being able to, 
sort of wrap your wrap your head around how many patients there are and where they are and how you can align that with uh, research and development goals. Um, but we're definitely seeing it. I mean, it it certainly depends on to what degree uh, the advocacy groups in a particular disease area are sort of developed and, and resourced. There's some rare diseases that still have very small, what I call mom and pop advocacy groups that are just sort of getting started in being able to interact with pharma. But some of the larger, more um, organized groups are just doing this really well. And there seems to be a, um, an effective interplay between pharma and advocacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure, in, in more ways than one. Since we've kind of danced around the topic a little, let's transition, transition Excuse me, over to rare disease marketing. And you mentioned earlier about the need for a patient, family, and caregiver-centric approach to communicating these therapies. How have you seen that approach evolve? Well, I, I think the first evolution has come, uh, particularly in rare disease, uh, in focusing maybe a little less so on the healthcare provider uh, side of that equation. Um, it, it's always going to be integral um, for, for pharma to communicate with clinicians. That's never going to go away. Um, but in the case of rare disease, where you see, you know, families uh, confronted with, you know, a, a diagnosis for a disease that almost no one knows about, uh, it's not uncommon for family members to know more about the disease than their primary, the primary care physician or the pediatrician. Um, so there's just something, um, you know, very specific to, to the rare disease experience that is patient focused because of that. And and family focused, um, and that com- that changes the entire complexion of of how you market and commercialize. And uh, on our side, which is the publishing side, it also changes the uh, the way that you approach content as well, right? So you're you're trying to um, craft, uh, publish, and promote content that is going to speak uh, the, the right language and the right tone to that particular audience. The rare disease ebook that I mentioned highlights three campaigns um, that uh, use as catalysts some of these longstanding challenges, like the protracted disease journey. The one of the campaigns highlights um, a short film that was used to uh, chronicle what the disease journey is like in, in the NTM lung disease area. Another campaign highlights the just the disease progression in ALS. And how you know this muscle wasting disease typically looks as it as it progresses, and then finally in CF the struggles that children go through uh, is the is the thrust of a third campaign that we look at, that we see, and you know some of these techniques uh, like short films, documentaries uh, that we've seen work in more of the what we call you know the mass the mass market disease areas like diabetes and more of chronic disease are being used in, in rare disease now. So, you know, we talk about sometimes there's reference made to the consumerization of healthcare and how some of those marketing techniques are uh, being borrowed in rare disease. I think that that's a nice example there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I had an opportunity uh, a few years ago to attend uh, the Rare Disease Film Festival, which meets every other year. Um, the last year I attended it, it was in San Francisco. Uh, and we really saw 
um, at that festival, um, you know, the the effectiveness of uh, of that kind of content in helping to spur on um, diagnosis and to help uh, forge um, patient communities, particularly in the ultra rare space where, you know, sometimes there might be less than a hundred people in the whole world that have a particularly, you know, a particular genetic mutation. Um, and it was a such a powerful medium to listen to patients and families talk about just their journey towards diagnosis and how painful that was and how even in uh, in situations where um, th there was no therapy for, for this particular disease, just getting the diagnosis and being able to name it and then to know that there were some other people out there who were grappling with it as well um, was so powerful and, and it, it, it was actually a positive development in, in this otherwise a very difficult situation. So uh, absolutely, you know, leveraging um, different types of media and creating different types of content that are going to meet patients and their families and, their, and caregivers along that patient journey, wherever they may be along it, um, it is critically important to getting them the, the information and resources and perspectives that they need uh, towards the best outcomes possible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that patients often are in the position of having to educate their physicians who might not have seen one of these uh, rare diseases before. They're sometimes referred to as zebras because in, obviously in medical school, you're taught when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not, not zebras, right? And, and rare disease, we're, we're trying to uh, train doctors to do the opposite, to consider once in a while a zebra. But 67% of U.S. patients and caregivers need to educate their doctors on their rare disease. And that's stats from way back in 2013. So I wonder if that's, that's gotten any, any better. But on the HCP side, since your site is designed to inform and educate uh, the entire care team, are you seeing any different trends in the uh, HCP educational realm? Yeah, well, just as we said before, um, you know, prior to the... Um, to the Orphan Drug Act and, and having those incentives, just as it made sense for pharma to concentrate on diseases that affect large proportions of the population, medical education has been much the same way. Um, and, and I don't even know if that's limited to primary care physicians. I think it's probably even true to an extent with specialists as well. Um, if you're going to be a neurologist, are you, are you going to focus on, you know, a neurological disease that... Um, Affects of this very small subset of a subset, or something where you know you you could really pick up a a large proportion of patients. Um, but that is changing, and I think that as the the treatment options improve uh, for these rare diseases, we see them go from a, a certain degree of obscurity in the medical community to being something that um, researchers and clinicians alike are very passionate about treating. I think spinal muscular atrophy is a great example of this where, you know, you have a U.S. patient population of probably less than 10,000 or maybe around 10,000. Um, and it's become a very large uh, community overall. There's a, there's a lot of research and drug development happening there. Um, the, uh, the, the advocacy groups are, are well organized and that community is very well organized and engaged. So on the HCP side, 
you know, that's certainly making a difference. But the challenge will always remain um, for, you know, striking that balance um, for, for frontline clinicians who may be seeing um, early signs of a rare disease and just they're not conditioned to think of it that way. And I think just as we, as I was saying, just as we create content to try to meet the patient at different places along their, their, their patient journey with the disease, we also, as content creators, uh, need to put the right resource content into the right channels online so that when primary care physicians and pediatricians go looking for the first bits of, of, of resource to, to, to maybe consider uh, a referral for what could be, become a rare disease, um, that we're able to give them those resources so that they can uh, more quickly uh, ascertain that. Mm-hmm, sure. And, you know, we should, we should say that rare disease patients and caregivers really are just looking for answers, as you say. So we can't underestimate the value of disease awareness sites with relevant up-to-date research and development information um, that helps diagnose or, you know, content on a site such as yours that could be potentially more valuable than say a banner ad, you know, and, and right. something that, that people who are looking might be more prone to, to trust to, to a greater degree. So. Right, right. And, even, and I would even say, even as publishers uh, in medical communications, we have to have the will uh, to publish this content in, 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 spa- in rare disease spaces that are otherwise quite barren. I mean, as an example, uh, if you search uh, type, type 2 diabetes on Google, um, I'm looking at it now, there's about 478 million results. Uh, if you search lysosomal acid lipase deficiency, there's 237,000 results. So uh, there is this, this dearth of, of, of content on the web for so many rare diseases. And uh, as publishers, we, we have to have the will uh, to publish into those spaces. And you know, frankly, on Rare Disease Advisor, there will likely be disease junctions on that site that we never even monetize, uh, but we will continue to publish in them uh, and be uh, the best you know, stewards of, of content that we can be, taking on a, somewhat of a advocacy-like role to make sure that we can uh, fill those gaps where, where, where we can. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, excellent. So since we're talking about rare disease media, let's let's shift gears and make that you know, hover over that point for another moment. You know, um, you and I were on a roundtable recently where uh, the data point was thrown out that I shouldn't use the term thrown out there, but was discussed that the mainstream media does not do a very good job of talking about you know these types of stories, worries. Uh, some social media platforms uh, it's, uh, to a greater extent, you know, you find it. Can you talk about some of the unmet information needs in supporting patients, families, and clinicians in, in this space and how, how large those gaps are? Right. Well, you, you're absolutely right that the, the biggest and most consistent story that mainstream media will tell about rare disease will be uh, first the, you know, the, 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 the breaking news of a blockbuster FDA approval for a rare disease therapy, uh, followed by you know a couple weeks of coverage about the cost of the of the therapy, um, and uh, we talked about on that roundtable how you know they they that is a sensationalist story in a sense it's 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 a it's a reasonable story and it's one that that's worth 
pursuing, but it's also uh, limited. It's limited in scope of really um, telling the full story about the impact um, that many of these therapies are having uh, on the lives of patients and their families. Um, and and I, I'm a big believer that we all need to weigh that as the ultimate value proposition uh, in terms of the, the cost of, of, of rare disease uh, drugs. But all of that being said, um, outside of those stories, those kind of big stories that really are geared not towards a specific rare disease community, but towards the population at large, there isn't a lot of coverage. Um, and, you know, something that, that I've always been a big believer in is that you can't really cover rare disease as a whole because it's 7,000 diseases. It's, it's massive. But when you decide um, what set of, of, of diseases you're going to cover and, and you're going to, um, you know, build that into your plan, uh, the idea is to create a truly comprehensive content experience for your audience. In our case, that's 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 a clinician audience. That's a um, that's a, a, a composite care team for each of the diseases that we cover. Um, you know, and you need to think about what kinds of content are going and and, and through what channels um, are are you going to be able to reach those different care team members? Uh, you know, a, a specialist who treats this rare disease all the time, and that's what they're known for, they probably want to read news and they want to read expert opinion from KOLs and, you know, and, and their peers. Uh, but then there's certainly going to be uh, primary care physicians and pediatricians who are going to be using search to just find square one, you know, for what is this disease? What's the standard of care? You know, what are the next steps? Um, and that's more like evergreen um, resource material. So, that's that's really I think the, the the ultimate ultimate approach, and that's where, in the medical communications world, um, we can start to bridge the gap um, in that in that sort of asymmetrical growth I was talking about, and start to catch up and say, you know, yeah, we're going to be there, we're going to fill in these gaps, um, and we're going to be uh, good stewards of authentic and authoritative content uh, for for the for the care teams and the, and the patient communities at large. Now, uh, RDA features a lot of content written by patients, I believe, uh, with you know various rare diseases. Can you talk about your approach as a publisher to choosing what patient communities, advocates, and disease areas to focus on? Absolutely, and um, I I think it's important to br- even if you're writing for a clinician audience to bring the patient voice <clears throat> into your coverage of that disease because. Provided the, the the patient columnists are able to write for that audience and understand that their audience is is not other patients, but it's um, it, it's doctors. You know, it's it's people who who are poten- treating the disease or potentially treating the disease. It gives clinicians the opportunity um, to evaluate uh, how they're interacting with their own patients without having to do so by looking at themselves and their patient. You know. That's a binary relationship, and it's very hard to step out of that relationship and see really what's happening there. What's that dynamic like? Am I doing a good job? Am I missing something? Um, the patients have the opportunity to let the clinician sort of hover over the the columnist's uh, own personal experiences and see that from a third person perspective that we believe uh, can really um, open some eyes and and 
and bring some, uh, some, some really interesting insights into their experience. Um, and I just think that interfaces very well with uh, the kind of content that you see out on the web in patient community uh, websites and platforms where, you know, collectively the, the, the dialogues and voices kind of are, are, are hopefully helping us all get better um, at, you know, supporting better patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that, that storytelling from, from patients and sufferers and caregivers can be very powerful. Do you feel comfortable talking about some other media that you were impressed with in the rare diseases area? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think that, um, you know, one thing that we've, that we've been uh, growing on the site from really launch and, you know, we're, we're continuing to, to scale up is, is our podcast where uh, we're pairing some of our feature stories that are very unique um, stories in and of themselves with, with an interview or a podcast with stakeholders and uh, researchers and physicians. I think the fo that format is particularly effective and it, 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 it's even more enhanced by the fact that nobody is, is covering unique stories within many of these rare disease spaces. So when you can step in there and tell a story about Friedrich's ataxia or, you know, uh, XLH or one of these, these otherwise not very well-known um, diseases, there, there's such a value there, you know, to, to being kind of the first, uh, the, the first mover, you know, to start telling these stories. Um, and we really want to keep doing that with podcasts. And I think that, that you know, the next generation of this um, is going to be sort of the, the next tier of social media. I, I've been reading how platforms like Discord are starting to be experimented with for as forums and stages for uh, communication in the rare disease space. And also using, um, you know, home devices, you know, a lot of the, the connected devices like the, the Echo Shows and the Google Homes uh, and being able to get content um, into the home uh, in, in, in a different, through a different avenue, uh, maybe even an avenue that, that, that helps support uh, people with disabilities uh, from their rare diseases. I think all of this uh, uh, portends to uh, increase our ability to, to serve these communities. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the ebook goes into, you know, some of the podcasts as well and, and cable TV shows and, and social platforms like TikTok, which we're seeing being used to, to greater effect to um, amplify disease education by physicians and patients. In fact, I believe a physician uh, was the number one content producer on TikTok uh, last year. Um, so really interesting uh, blossoming of health media there. One last question for you, Michael, uh, just based on your knowledge of and experience with the rare diseases community, what's your advice for pharma marketers wishing to develop relationships with certain populations or groups? I think that the most important thing is for um, pharma to, to seek to align uh, with content on the web that, you know, really synergizes their message and their, their messaging with authenticity and authority. Um, they, they need to seek those, those opportunities out and find those alignments, you know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of pharma companies who create some pretty amazing content. Uh, they go out and they work with brand ambassadors, you know, people from the 
patient and caregiver community um, who have amazing stories to tell. Even though they're, I always say they're not in the business of making content at Pharma, and yet a lot of times they do a pretty good job, but they don't always have the, um, the, the, the channels to get it out there, right? And, and they can't just stick it up on their own website. They have to, to find trusted channels to do this. On our side of things, from the publisher side, we need to create original content. We need to make the investment, make the commitment, um, and, and write and promote stuff that doesn't already exist out there. Uh, if we do that, it, it, it really um, meshes well uh, with those kinds of patient stories and, and messages that, that pharma is using to um, not only support the commercialization of their products, but also to altruistically support these communities where they're making a big investment. Great, great, great recommendations. Well, you are using the Rare Disease Channel to fill the information gaps and highlight the original stories of patients and caregivers and KOLs and other content to ultimately boost outcomes. And, and that is a goal that we can all get behind. And so thank you for sharing uh, with us today, Michael. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Again, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Okay, that's all the time we have. If you enjoyed this uh, episode of the podcast, give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe and help others discover the show. The MMNM podcast is produced by Deborah Stoll, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. We're out every week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.